Do you ever wonder if the work you're doing for God's kingdom is really making a difference? Brian Hogan has a missionary friend who served in a really tough place overseas. Sometimes he wondered if his work there was really making a difference. But years later, he went back to that country and he met a 90-year-old man who had come to know Jesus and now hosts a church of new believers in his home. My friend said tears were streaming down my face and all I could think of was, it was worth it. It was worth our kids struggling with malaria. It was worth the mobs that formed against us at the instigation of the mullah. It was worth everything we went through because of this guy and because of the fruit that's come from this. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and we're in our studio in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, with part of the leadership team of YWAM Frontier Missions. YWAM Youth with a Mission, and uh, we have guests today, Kevin Sutter and Brian and Louise Hogan. Welcome, in all cases, welcome back to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Let's talk about frontier missions in the YWAM world. What does that mean? What, what qualifies a country to be frontier missions? Well, uh, we have probably 350 teams working among unreached people groups. Those are groups that have not had the gospel presented in a way they can understand. And uh, typically they're Muslim people, Hindu people, Buddhist people, maybe tribal people who have their own belief system and perspective on life, but they have not heard about Jesus. They have not heard the truth about who he is, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so it's our burden and our desire and, and our passion to present the good news about Jesus to them in a way they can understand. So uh, we've got people working all over doing that and uh, making some significant headway also. And the Voice of the Martyrs prayer map has 68 countries where Christians are persecuted. Those would also be a lot of the same countries where you guys are working because those are where the unreached people, where the hard-to-reach people are at. And I know we have to be sensitive about security, so we're not going to go into a lot of detail. But where are some places where you see God really working and maybe some places that our listeners would think, wow, I I thought that was totally unreached. I thought nothing was going on there for the kingdom. Where are some places that you really see God doing some cool stuff? One place that comes immediately to mind is a place that if you were to look at a at a map of the world that would show relative levels of Christian penetration, this this area might light up as, as bright green, at least a lot of it, and that's sub-Saharan Africa. And the church has done amazingly well there in the past 50, 60 years. There's been an explosive growth. However, the whole idea of unreached people groups, they were originally, Dr. Ralph Winter, when he was coming up with it, they were originally called hidden people groups because they've been bypassed 
by the gospel. And there are places where the church is growing in huge numbers among a certain dominant or majority people group. And there's right in the midst of this, a Muslim group or a Hindu group or something that's completely untouched. And that's certainly true in sub-Saharan Africa. And we're seeing wonderful breakthroughs in some of those groups that have never responded at all to the gospel before now. I think of that in an American context. What a reminder for us. You know, there can be unreached people that live right next door to our church. <laughs> and and we often look by them and think, oh, well, there's a church there. But there's people that need to be reached. What are some of those groups? Or Can you tell us any specific stories of, of how they're being reached and what that looks like? Yes. Uh, we probably want to be careful about mentioning the exact name because the work is ongoing. The workers are in place. And um, the religious groups that are involved you know, tend to react. Uh, sometimes it's it's shaming for, uh, for example, for Muslim groups to hear that inroads are being made by the gospel. They might be experiencing the reality of people among them turning to become disciples of Jesus and may not be minding it at all, right? Because those people are better sons, better students, better workers, better friends, better everything the gospel transforms them, and they're not rejecting their culture. They're still very much um, normal people, if you will, but now with their allegiance given to Jesus Christ. However, if you put out the news, right. oh, there's a, a <laughs> Christian movement among this people, then you get a completely different reaction, and it's one based in shame, and, and, and extreme measures will be taken to try and regain some honor for Islam or something. So, all that being said, uh, there is a Muslim people group uh, somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa that we're just seeing amazing things in a couple different countries. This group exists across national borders. We have different works among the same people group, but different sets of church planters that are, that are seeing movements develop where now the locals the people that they have reached out to, the people that they uh, reached out to in the beginning in compassion for, for elderly people and things like that. Now there's churches that are planting churches that are planting churches. It's not the missionaries anymore, the mission teams that are doing that. They're working with the leaders of the movement, and they're even beginning to send out missionaries to other groups. At what point do you call something a movement? And I know... This is something you guys have studied and talk about. But at what point is it, okay, this is beyond a few people are coming to Christ, which is great. We celebrate that. Now this is a movement of God's Spirit. How do you define that? Or where do you say, okay, now this is when that started? One of my friends, I was just talking with him a couple of months, and he told me this. Uh, he works there. He's African himself. And this is among the people that— Brian just was talking about this particular tribe. He's been involved there on and off for probably 15 years. He was uh, driving down a dirt road out in this uh, region, and he was noticing the different villages along the way. And uh, he remembered back when he used to live in that area, looking at those villages and praying and hoping and dreaming that someday there would be followers of Jesus in these villages because they're completely unreached. 
is that now I was looking at these villages and I knew there were believers there and fellowships there and God was working among these people. He said, back in those early days, I would think maybe someday God will send missionaries to these villages. There's nobody working among them now. Maybe someday missionaries will come. And he said, in my imagination, I was imagining people coming from other countries, missionaries from other countries coming and uh, sharing the gospel in these villages. He said, but Kevin, I realize now that these villages have been reached and they've been reached by their own tribal people, the ones that we helped come to the Lord, the ones we trained, the ones we're praying for, the ones we've commissioned. They're the ones that brought the gospel to these villages. So that's kind of what happens when there's movement. The People themselves are taking the gospel to their friends, their relatives, their neighbors, and it's it's multiplying even outside of their region. So uh, it gets to the point where there's that kind of multiplication taking place, and uh, eventually it doesn't even need the help of the outside workers any longer because it's, it's moving and it's uh, got a life of its own. The power of Jesus. Well, I have a story about about the the continuing multiplication. Last summer, Brian and I were teaching in Africa, and we went to we were in several different nations, and we were they, they had brought us in to do discipleship training, and I was doing some childbirth education, and we were in a little town where we had had to we flew into this the the country, then we got into a little dinky hopper plane, flew to another city, got into a taxi rode about 20 minutes to the port, got onto a rickety boat, did 20 <laughs> minutes across this river, got onto the back of a motorcycle, did 30 minutes into the middle of this island, and then walked another 20 minutes to where we did our teaching. Wow. And there was a couple from this tribe in the teaching. And we I don't think we realized it until we were a couple weeks, a week into it. And when I, re, when I realized who they were, I was like, wow, God, this is amazing. Eight years ago, these people weren't even believers. There was no church there. And now here they are sending missionaries. Amazing. It was such a privilege. They were training in a school of frontier missions in the middle of this island, in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) On on the frontier. It was a frontier school on the frontier. One of the things that's just really unique to this particular area that we're talking about is that the original missionary... um, decided to bring the training closer to the action. So he actually had the frontier missionary training in the village of unreached Muslim people. Oh, wow. And so we were literally in a house doing all our training with the people outside that had formed mobs and, you know, things like that. And there was a mullah and there was all of that. It was fantastic because the students could immediately put into play what they had learned that day. There wasn't this long training period and then maybe some kind of outreach thing. Well, one of the students in that training that was in that village originally ended up starting this thing on the island. And so he has the training. That's all he knows, right? Uh He has the training right in the middle of the unreached people that he's working with. And these people are the despised people of his youth. He was from a wealthy family on the mainland, and you didn't even acknowledge the existence of these thousands, tens of thousands of people on this island and, na- and then God broke his heart during his missionary training, and that's the people he was called wow. to. The, he is so beloved there. I mean, it just brought me to tears. We'd get lost. Louise and I would get lost because the trails just wind around, and people would see us, and they said, are you the friends of this man who was uh, offering this training? And we'd say, yes, and they'd just lead us. Even little children <laughs> would just lead us to where his house was, <laughs> no matter where we were. It was amazing. 
We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with the leaders, some of the leaders of YWAM Frontier Missions, Kevin Sutter and Brian and Louise Hogan. One of the things you mentioned, Kevin, was the idea that here is this African man who is now going to this African people group. In a lot of ways, that's easier than it is for an American to go and try to learn the language and try to learn the culture. How do you get to that point? How do you find and train people within the culture who can then reach out to those other villages? Well, I want to start off by saying, while culturally it might be a bit closer and a bit easier, they have hurdles that a Western missionary wouldn't have in uh, just family expectations that he is going to a place where they never expected their son to go. That's very common. The people they're reaching out to are almost always some kind of hated group that their people would never be seen among, much less go and spend their lives among and risk their lives among. So there are some huge obstacles for them to overcome. There's also not an idea in most of these places of the church supporting missionaries. And so they're really starting out from ground zero. And I, these are my heroes. I mean, these people overcome incredible odds and they keep on regardless. And it just brings me to tears when I think about it. Well, I think I think you raise an important point because I think maybe me included our American perspective as well. It's a lot easier for them. You know, the, they're from there, they live there. But as you say, any place you're going to go and share the gospel where the gospel's not, there's going to be challenges. Satan's not just going to lay back and let no. that happen. And like you say, even within their culture and their family, they have some challenges that we really don't understand. When we sent out the first Mongolian missionaries, they uh, this one gal was going over to the Philippines to get some training. And I'm thinking, oh, how wonderful. The Philippines, the food there is amazing. There's rice and there's fish and there's vegetables. <laughs> she wrote back, I think after a week, she says, please pray for me. The food is so difficult. Because <laughs> as a Mongolian, she's used to eating meat and potatoes and that's about it. And she actually had real stomach problems because she wasn't getting enough she meat. She had to go to the doctor and the doctor said, give her a steak. Yelled at our <laughs> A frontier missions leader of the Philippines and said, give this girl a steak. A steak. That's a, that's a nice prescription <laughs> yes. if you're sick. Yes. A lot of the places where you guys are working in YWAM Frontier Missions, you can't sort of get your passport stamped as a missionary. Hey, I'm a missionary. I'm coming here. I'm going to set up a church. How do you overcome that and... And obviously, again, this is a security issue, so we got to kind of be careful. But what do you do to get in the door to start the conversation, even to be able to be there? And once again, the answer is obviously very situational. It's different for Westerners. I do spend a significant part of my time training largely people from America and Europe and Australia, Westerners, to go and be frontier missionaries. That was our experience, and so we're passing on what we've done to others and how to plant churches that will reproduce. But I also, I have to admit, these are the opportunities that I enjoy more than anything else. I have the opportunity to train what we call people from the developing world or the two-thirds world, and these people the difference is, is that when you teach them something, they just go and do it. There's no question about it. There's no hand wringing or how will we do it. They just go and do it. They're used to existing on a lot less. 
and it doesn't really change maybe their their lifestyle or their level of living too much to go to another situation where they're going without and there isn't electricity and running water and stuff. So they just go for it and they find things that they can do. And it's all kind of small things, run a little shop or do, you know, learn how to give injections and test for TB or something like that. Then you're providing this valuable service and the villagers come to you because you're saving them a huge trip into the city to get a malaria test, for example, or something. So these are things that they've discovered, caring for the elderly. In some communities, that's a huge need. Young people have gotten really busy and people aren't caring for the elderly. And when you do that and you love them well, it speaks volumes. In, in one case, an elderly man was the first one to get saved, and he was the person of peace. And he ended up introducing others to Jesus, and the church really began in his home. It's interesting because our friend went back, and he was talking with the man, and the man is now in his 90s, and he had gone blind. And he said he commiserated with him. He said, um, I'm so sorry that you've gone blind. And the guy said, I'm not blind. I was blind before you people came here. I may not see the ground very well, but I see into eternity. And my friend said tears were streaming down my face, and all I could think of was it was worth it. It was worth our kids struggling with malaria. It was worth the mobs that formed against us at the instigation of the mullah. It was worth everything we went through because of this guy and because of the fruit that's come from this. What do you look for in the workers that that are going to withstand the pressure from their own families and the pressure of persecution and the hardship of malaria and all of the things that go into taking the gospel to a place it's never been before, what kind of people are you looking for? Tenacious people. (laughs) I actually, when I tell our story from Mongolia, we had just about everything that I could imagine happen to try and bounce us off from what God had called us to do. We went through four organizations within one month of landing in Mongolia (laughs) getting kicked out of one after another, basically. And uh, we just kept going. You know, they were like, well, then you have to go home now. It's like, sorry, we didn't come here at your command. We're not leaving at your command. You have to be like a pit bull and sink your teeth and set your jaw and not let the devil shake you off. We had so many things. We had no visa. They were just, God had to do miracles to keep us there. And because of that, and because we were tenacious, when it came to the fact of some people were being really top secret, I'm not against that. And I know that there are situations where you have to be. But in our situation, we were like, let's take the government of Mongolia at its word. They're saying they have religious freedom. So if somebody asks me why I'm here, I'm telling the truth. And, I, and people said, how, how, how could you do that? What if you get kicked out? And I said, I don't think they have the power to kick me out because God put me in here by miracles. And so we're looking for that kind of tenacious person who can hang on against all odds. The other thing is, is that we actually teach during our church planting training that the church planter needs to be willing and ready to willingly suffer persecution along with their disciples. And the the point is not that anybody is out there looking for persecution. And in fact, you know, we'd even want our disciples to sidestep it gracefully if it was possible, right? We don't want anyone to be persecuted. But the fact is, is that um, so often the foreign missionary will wave a passport 
as a get-out-of-jail-free card, and they're off when things get hot. Everything we do, though, is modeling. Everything we do is modeling, and the church planner's most powerful tool is modeling. So when you get out of the trouble and you leave the church behind in it, you actually have modeled something. You've modeled something that's very simple and easy to read for them. Jesus isn't worth standing up for. Do whatever it takes to get out of this. And for them, it's a denial of Christ. And we're horrified when we're allowed back in later to find out that everyone's fallen away. But we actually taught them to do that. So we teach our church planners, no, you, you settle this in your heart now. You're going to willingly face persecution along with your disciples. And in most cases, that's probably going to be getting kicked out for the foreigner. But people aren't dumb. And they see this person stayed here. They stood for Jesus, and the government dragged them kicking and screaming to the airport. Let's go back to the issue of tenacity. How do you identify that quality in a prospective person? Is it a you just watch how they live their lives? Is it an interview process? Is it you talk to their friends? How do you say this person has the the pit bull quality? They're not going to give up. This person over here, we're not so sure about. Well, in YWAM, it's really easy because they're like sleeping in a bunk bed and eating horrible food. And, uh, they wouldn't be there if they didn't have to <laughs> It's like, I take that back. Bitch. Okay, I'm boot sorry, camp. YWAM. <laughs> yeah, we do have our own boot camp, and that's one way. <laughs> they did make it through a discipleship you, training You school. try to scare them off, and if they don't scare off. <laughs> right. They... Also, one of the things that uh, really makes Youth with a Mission who it is, is that we really believe that we can hear God speak to us, and uh, that is a high value to us. So what I would want to be able to ask somebody is, to what extent has uh, God really spoken to you through his word, through his Holy Spirit, through circumstances, through whatever? Let me hear how God has spoken to you. How, how confident are you that God is calling you into this? And so that would help me to get an idea on where they're at right now. And if they're not sure, well, then I'd really encourage them to be sure. Be sure yeah. Take some time and really seek the Lord. And here's some ways you could do that. You know, go spend a day with Take a week. Really ask him, what is it you want me to do with regard to your purposes, Lord, to complete the Great Commission? Lord, I'm thinking about this and this. Lord, please speak to me. Okay, and then when you sense you have... God's word on it. Uh, how does it line up with the scriptures? What do other people say? Share it with others as as it becomes clear and clear that this is something God is calling you to, then you can hold on to that. That's one of the things that's kept me involved in Frontier Missions for over 30 years is absolute confidence. This is what the Lord has me doing. This is what I'm called to do. And I Love doing it most of the time. And, <laughs> and I'm often seeking the Lord. What do you want me to do now? What's next? How do I keep moving with you? I was just thinking about earlier today about how I don't think any of us are able to come up with a great grand scheme for our lives. The real scheme, the real grand scheme is to follow Jesus every day. And he begins, begins to unfold 
the path for us. And it's easier for me to look back than it is to look forward and to uh, get an idea of where we're going. You know, I, I have vision. I have a sense of calling. But the how I'm going to get there is up to Jesus to show me. And he does. So that gives me perseverance. And it keeps me going uh, with a sense of hope. And also, with perseverance comes the experience where you realize, wow, it's really happening. Things are happening. What I once hoped would happen, what I once prayed for is happening. It's unfolding. So I have enough of a track record to look back and say, look what God's already done. It's very evident that more is going to happen. Yeah. And I want to encourage people, as we've heard from Brian and Louise, they Brian has a book called There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. I have a copy sitting right here. And we have talked with them. If you go to vomradio.net and look in the archives, you can hear more about their work in Mongolia, some of the sacrifices that they made, even burying a son in Mongolia. But you had that. You always went back to that. God's called us here. Until he calls us somewhere else, we're going to stay here. So you talk about that tenacity. The other thing you talked about, though, is being willing to suffer. Same question. How do you identify that? That this is a person who, when hardship comes, when persecution comes, they're going to withstand it. This one over here, we're, we're not sure. We're worried about him. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention that God has used that story that I wrote into the book I, I don't think a week goes by that I don't get a letter from somebody that says, that your story inspired me so much. Now I'm on this mission field or I'm doing my training with this organization Praise or whatever. So we're coming out with the 10th anniversary re-edition of the book oh, where cool. I'm adding in some things, updating it a bit from a trip I just got back from to Mongolia and it's going to have a new cover and hopefully appeal to a whole new audience. But it's sold 80,000 <laughs> copies, so it's done already. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah that's great. So how do you identify someone who will withstand persecution? Yeah. Can you identify someone ahead of time, or do you just have to wait until the persecution comes and see? Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's a hindsight thing. I think I agree in that there's been, over the years, there's been some people who, in the training, really shown, and I was very excited about them, and then they didn't last very long at all, and something that I thought was fairly light in severity sent them home and they just never went back. And I kept thinking, okay, you're going to find a new place, re-implant. and they didn't. And there's other people that were, um, to use a word that's probably not very nice, but kind of lackluster during the training and kind of faded into the background. And they had this incredible staying power and they've accomplished great things. So, so much of it, I think, comes down to what Kevin said about hearing from God and then a radical dependence on God. And if if both of those things aren't going on, I don't think you can just grit your teeth and do it just on human endurance and, and staying power, so to speak. For Louise and I, it was so important that we both heard from God. And I know that there's couples out there that are moving towards mission. And even though this is not my personality, this is something I came to with a little bit of kicking and screaming, It's so important to, if you're hearing something from God about going to a hard place as a family for the gospel, you can give that back to God and say, God, if my partner can't hear this from you, it's not happening because you countenanced, you blessed my binding myself to this person. And I know that you can speak to them and you have to do it before I can go. 
Otherwise, it's a deal killer. And I don't know if some people think that's unspiritual, but for us, it worked that way. Louise was... Um, I did not want to go to Mongolia. And I don't know if I shared this. <laughs> I wasn't going to be that loud, but it's <laughs> totally true. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> yeah, I was born and raised in the Mojave Desert. I like the heat. And the one thing I knew about Mongolia is it's cold. cold. And I did not want to go. And I kept arguing with God and kept saying, no, it's cold there. I'm not interested. I don't want to go. And then I had this one week before we went to do our training. We were already headed to do training. And Brian was like, yeah, we're going to Mongolia. And I'm like, yeah, Asia. I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down Find to Asia. Find the warm place. Yeah. yeah. And then I had this week where every single day I had something come up that had Mongolia in it. Wow. Like, for example, I was in the grocery store looking at uh, salad dressings, and this guy standing next to me, I'm in California. People don't just talk to you out of the blue in California. They're not that friendly. Sorry, Californians. And... Um, this guy just starts talking to me about a friend of his who just went to Mongolia with the Peace Corps. And I was like, why are you even telling me this? I, I grabbed my salad dressing and I ran out of there. And I had every day there was something else that came up until by the end of the week. I'm like, okay. And then I still hadn't given it up to God. And then we, at the end of the week, we headed up to do our training in Salem, Oregon. And we're driving through California. And we're driving on, uh, down the, uh, on the road. And over the road, there's a sign that says California Yurts. And so there's a Mongolian house that looks like right it, next to the road, right next to the road, <laughs> right there, sandwiched with my home state. And I was like, okay, God, yeah, I still don't really want to go. It's cold. And then um, we went through our training, and I loved it. I had a wonderful time. And we're near the end. Of, we, we, we bought our tickets. We were ten days to go, and I'm still kind of. Like, God, seriously? <laughs> Do you know how cold it is there? And there was a prayer conference thing happening at the YWAM base where we were. It was like 2,000 people that had come together to pray for the nations. And it was a three-night thing. And the first night, uh, Brian and I were trading offs because somebody needed to watch the kids. And the first night, um, I went and we prayed for Salem, Oregon. And then the next night, Brian went and we prayed for the United States. And he or, he came back from that and he was like, ugh, this the people here, they don't even realize it's a world out there. And he's like, you go tomorrow night. And so on the third night, we prayed for the nations. And as we walked in, as we sat down, they handed out these envelopes that had little pieces of paper in them with the names of countries from the 1040 window in them. And so 2,000 people in the audience, right, in this bucket with all these papers in it. And I They pass it to me, and I pulled it out. And just guess what country I got. I got Mongolia. And I was like, okay, God. <laughs> got the ticket. I'm going. But then through the night, they were asking us to pray. They said, look at this country. Are you willing to go? It's like, yes, got my ticket. <laughs> and if you're not willing to go, you need to pray for somebody who's willing to go. And it was really funny when they asked us to pray, uh, to pray that. There was a young girl who had been through Mongolia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And so she knew it. She'd seen it. And she didn't want to go there. And she comes running across. She knew that I was going. She comes running across the auditorium and gave me her slip as well. Because <laughs> she was like, I don't want to go, but I know you are. So I framed that. And I took it to Mongolia with me. And I still have it to this day. And it's a good thing I had that confirmation that was over and over and over again. Because yeah. when it came down to it, when our son died, I was indeed a flight risk. And Brian hid my passport as well. He should have. Because I, I almost every day, I, my prayer life consisted of, oh, God, let me go home. So how did that carry you through? How, how did you go back to that? I mean, literally, you had it framed on the wall. But how in your spirit did you go back to that, God, I know you called us here. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Basically that. And then there was another th a really cool thing that happened. Um, it was a week before our son was born. 
not even a week, just a few days. So at that time in Mongolia, though, we did not have the Old Testament translated into Mongolian yet. Um, And one of our Mongolian workers had read Psalm 100 in the English, and then she translated it into Mongolian, and and she was just so taken with that psalm. So she shared it with one of the gals who writes the music in our church, and she uh, wrote a song to Psalm 100. She then shared that song with the drama team, and they choreographed it to music, and they performed it at church the Sunday before my son was born, and he was born the following Wednesday. And I stood in the back of the church watching this whole thing unfold. And it was just, it was so interesting because they'd been singing and they had been singing a translated song. And then they started in on this song. And it was like we were all of a sudden in the throne room of God. And everyone rose to their feet and we were all in worship to the living God. And I stood there thinking, oh my heavens, Jesus has waited 2,000 years to hear this psalm sung from Mongolian hearts in Mongol in their tongue, in their language. He's waited this long, and he is worthy of this, and this is why I'm here. I'm not here because, and people would tell me this before we left. They'd say, oh, if you're going to go to such a hard place, you know, you have, you have to love the people. And I'd think, okay, yeah, yeah, I have to love the people. I'm like, okay, how do you love two million people? That's, that's like, it's an impossibility. And then you get there and you meet some of the people and you're like, mm, they're not very lovable. <laughs> and some of them are, but some of them aren't. Right. Just and like so, Americans. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Good Just people. like Americans. And so when I stood there thinking about it, I was like, that's because I love Jesus and I want to see him worshiped from the nations and from these hearts. And this is why I'm here, because Jesus is worthy of the worship of all the nations. And that is the thing that really helps sustain me. And it's so it's so so beautiful of God to give me that gift right before my son was born, and then he died five or seven weeks later, and I still had that 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 whole that memory is still fresh in my mind. And on his gravestone it says, "Jesus is worthy." Yeah. I want to encourage you, listeners, go to vomradio.net and just search for Brian and Louise Hogan. We have two episodes where we talk about that story. We talk about the birth of the church in Mongolia, and. Uh, it is great stuff. Obviously, I'm biased, but it is great stuff. Uh, it will encourage you. It will challenge you. So YWAM Frontier Missions, you're sending people out to these hostile places at the end of the world where it's really cold, and also the people might not be happy to hear the gospel. How do you prepare them? You've, you've identified someone who's, who's willing to go. You think God is calling them to go. They seem to have that tenacity. Now, how do you equip and prepare them to go? There are a few different ways that we have. Our preferred method is some variation on what we call a school of frontier missions. And and what we've done is we've pulled together what we consider essential training to get somebody who's going to be planting churches long-term among the unreached. Obviously, there's a lot of short-term ministries that are out there, particularly in Youth with a Mission. It's a it's a huge organization. But when somebody indicates that God's calling them to plant churches, there's things they need to do. They need to learn the culture. They need to learn the language. And this stuff doesn't happen on a two-month <laughs> outreach. And so we prepare them as best we can. There's 12 essential skills that we try to fit them out with so that they're ready 
to begin the work. Uh, the, the assumption is is that they're going to find things along the way that they don't know and have to learn those either from other wise souls on the field, from coming out and downloading something new, from some extra training. We provide things along the way as well, gathering events and ongoing training. But our basic thing is once somebody's identified, this is what God's calling me to do. I mean, the foundational book of Youth with a Mission is by our founder, Lauren Cunningham, and it's called, Is That Really You, God? It's all about hearing from God. <laughs> so they tell us, we don't really tell them, you should be a missionary. We, you know, we have events where we promote the unreached and everything, but people come and take this training, whether it's a school of frontier mission, a school of strategic mission, school of urban mission, um, harvest multiplication training. There's a number of different permutations of it, but that's what we're doing. We're preparing them to get started well. And if you can lay those rails straight from the beginning, then things go so much better than trying to correct things down the road. And it sounds a little more daunting than it really is uh, when we say church planting. A lot of people have in mind, oh, I have to go somewhere and build a church building and put a steeple on the top and have an ordained minister up in front and the pews and the choir. That isn't what we're talking about at all. We're talking about the type of church that existed in the book of Acts where they met in homes, typically small group, meeting in homes, led by elders, reaching their neighbors, reaching their community, and that these groups can multiply and grow and keep spreading. So it's making disciples, bringing them together into a group, helping them to grow in Jesus, learning how to hear from God themselves, obey God, build one another up, etc., obey the commands of Jesus and see the blessings of God's kingdom within their own families, among their neighbors, across our society, and then eventually to other nations as well. It uh, is a, a different concept than what we're typically seeing or using in, in the West where right. you know it's much more structured and traditional. And this is going back to what we see in the early church and reproducing that. If you'd like to watch a really good explanation of what we mean by these simple reproducible fellowships, uh, gatherings, ecclesias around the Lord Jesus Christ, you could type into a YouTube search, Kevin Sutter, Simple Gatherings, and there's some great little short videos that explain it. He doesn't remember doing it. He just looked at me blankly. I happen to know they're there. (laughs) Brian and Louise, I I know you have been through this, and so you will have some insights on this, but I think Kevin will as well. When is it time for the foreigners to go home and leave, leave the church to the national people? You know, um, I was actually, I had the role on our team. Uh, We had regular team meetings, and one of the things we train our people in is that they need to be constantly evaluating in terms of the end goal. So we're big on having a very clear goal that we're shooting for. And you know when you've gotten there because you're constantly asking, what's going well? What's not going well? What can we do better? And where are we at in this process? So my uh, role on the team was the closure monitor. And (laughs) I would literally go around the room at our team meetings and ask each person. And we had a multinational team. We were Swedes, Americans, and Russians. And I'd ask each person, what did you do this week in the Mongolian church? And, you know, they'd rattle off two or three things. And so we'd pick one, whichever one sounded easiest, and say, why are you still doing that? Is there someone you can hand that off to? And we literally worked ourselves out of a job so that by January, 
of the year that we handed the church over. Uh, we handed it over at Easter time, but by January at one of our team meetings, I went around the entire room and not one person on our team had had anything to do with the Mongolian church that week. <laughs> I mean, we were still doing all the hard stuff of life in Mongolia, like grocery shopping and teaching our English classes and stuff, but we didn't do anything with the Mongolian church and we realized we were done. We needed to observe for a while to make sure that the transfer had really taken place, but it was time to begin planning to pass that baton, that relay race baton, to them. And is that part of your training now of, of what is, what's the end goal? When are you done? Yes. Yeah, we, we actually um, cover the goal. We have a very basic goal that we say is this is our goal for all YWAM church planning teams. And then you kind of tailor make it. You add in the name of your people group or maybe a region. Uh, so the goal is a reproducing movement, a spontaneously multiplying movement of indigenous churches, planning churches. We talk a lot about 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. You can recite it better than I can, Brian. Please do. Uh, Timothy, Paul says, these things that you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust them to reliable men who are able to train others also. So you have four generations of transmission right there. And it's interesting, and this goes with a question you asked earlier that didn't get fully answered, in that um, people who are practitioners of these disciple-making movements or church planning movements, they're variously called, a lot of them would say, you're looking for that fourth generation. If it gets to the fourth generation, in most cases, it just keeps going and you can pull out, you can leave, and it's in good hands. If, it do if, you're, if you're short of that, it doesn't. Now, in Mongolia, I would have said that we were at the third generation, but there was such a momentum and such a speed to what was happening that they were already asking us to come back and train missionaries to go to other peoples. <laughs> so I wasn't really worried about the fourth generation right. of Mongolian churches. All of our daughter churches were reproducing into granddaughter churches, and it was obvious that was going to continue. I, I love that passage, 2 Timothy 2, because it talks about that um, multiplication. You know, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men will teach others also. So there is the generational growth. But the verse right before it is Paul talking to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, my son. And then he says, be strong in the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. So here's Paul with a loving father-to-son relationship. And then he's saying, be strong in God's grace in Jesus Christ. So there's that relational component, like father-to-son. And with God being, and Jesus Christ being the, the core of that relationship, when there's that type of um, love, the discipler to the person that's being discipled, and then that person turning around and doing the, having the same kind of relationship with his disciples and on reproducing like that, it gets to the point where it is almost like a, a parental situation where when the disciples are young, brand new believers, they need more help. They need more encouragement. They need more constant care. But as they begin to mature, the mother and the father, they have to move into the background more as, as their children become mature. And uh, it's, it's that type of thing. You, don't, you can't Treat your disciples like little children once they begin to mature. They don't need you around telling 
uh, them what, uh, what to do and how to do it step by step. Now they know how, and they need to be given the freedom and also your trust. All right, do it, because otherwise the, the temptation is always there for us as those that are the pioneers to feel like if, if we pass it on to the local people, they won't do it the way right. we've done it. We got all the training. We have the experience. They're not going to do it like we did. Uh, in the same way that I now, as a, a parent of grown children, may have to say, you know, my kids are not going to raise their kids the way I did. But that's probably for the best. <laughs> they need to. It's their own families, their own children. And now I'm the grandpa. And, and I have a new role. So it is like a family, you know. So the, the parents need to uh, give more and more freedom to the youth. If we're starting a movement, we have to entrust leadership into the hands of the local people probably sooner than later, probably sooner than we would ever expect. They need to be trusted with, with uh, responsibility. Otherwise, the movement may never even come about or the potential leaders will be squelched. That's a hard lesson sometimes. It I mean, is. It's hard for yes. it's hard for us, maybe as Westerners, maybe just as people, to give up authority and give up leadership. That doesn't come naturally to us. The two biggest um, obstacles or enemies of these things developing into a movement are that what we're doing and calling church can be too complicated for it to be multiplied. We bring we bring a model that. It's beautiful. It's full-featured. It's full of programs. There's a parking lot with a, a space for the pastor and the pastor's <laughs> wife and everything. But it's it's too heavy for them to do. So we have to radically simplify and go back to the New Testament and say, what are the bare essentials? And that's what we're taking a seed. We're not taking a potted palm tree to the nations. The second thing is that we often fail to trust the Holy Spirit in the lives of these new believers when God inhabits them. They get just as much God as you and I have after 30-plus years of following him. All we add to that is experience, and a lot of that is just hard knock school, right? So um, they really have the full package, and we need to um, take risks and trust them, uh, or not trust them, trust the Holy Spirit in their lives to see these things multiply. Most of the people, this Paul Timothy thing that Kevin was talking about, 99% of the people in our movement in Mongolia were trained that way, face-to-face, things being passed on through modeling. We send almost no, very, very, very few away for outside training, and those few are supposed to be those who, like us, are called to go cross-culturally as missionaries. It's fine to send a missionary off to Taiwan or the Philippines or something for training because they're going cross-culturally anyway. I just taught in a school in mainland China on the 40th floor of a high-rise apartment building in an apartment, and it was a school of frontier missions. And I thought they were all Chinese. They all looked Chinese to me. But I gave as one of my examples uh, uh, something about, well, if you were going to the Hui Muslims here in China, and I gave this example, and this guy's eyes got bigger and bigger, and then he came up to me at the break and goes, did you say that because I'm a Hui? (laughs) 
And here he was. He's from an unreached people group, but there's been a church planted there, and he had an apostolic wow. calling on his life and had been sent out to get missionary training. So who I didn't even know who his church planter was, but the guy was doing it right. He's training everybody locally through example and through passing on 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. But then this guy and his wife, who had apostolic calling, they sent to get frontier missions training. Let's talk a little bit about Mongolia, and we're on the tail end of our time. But I know you were just there, so you were able to see what's happening now. What is the state of the church now that that you left, what, 10 years ago, 12 years ago? 20. 20 years ago. Yeah, 1996, (laughs) 21 years ago. Well, it's a complicated picture in that we, our foreign team, only planted one church. So the hundreds of churches have come from our disciples making disciples and, and planting churches in other Second places. Second Timothy 2, too. Yes. The, <laughs> the Mongols are the real church planters. You know, all we did was kind of model one and say, uh, this is how you do it if you're foreign and not very good at it, but I'm sure you guys could do better. <laughs> and so, but that one that we planted is an urban church. And of course, most of the rest, Mongolia only has three real cities. So actually, some of our disciples planted a church in the second largest city. We were in the third largest city. And then they went on to plant a church. And actually, about seven or eight people from our movement have planted seven or eight churches in the capital city as well. And I got to visit some of those. And it was really exciting. Um, These are the churches that are looked to by pretty much all the churches in the country as the ones who are exciting and doing it right and everything. And yet, as I met with the leaders we could see things that they still needed to go back and shore up. You know, this this is a movement that's 25 years on now, and the mother church, the one we foreigners planted, because it's an urban church, it's different than its daughter churches. And so the daughter churches are really small, and people live in gears out in the countryside, or yurts, if you want to call them that. And um, it's very easy for them to do their semi-nomadic. They can go and plant new churches in other places. The mother church, these people work jobs and they, you know, dress most of the time in Western clothes. And, and so it's, it's different. And one thing that's happened where we planted the church is that because wherever you see success, wherever the kingdom is just exploding – People love to come towards success, you know, so you maybe people in the audience have heard about places where revival is breaking out or something, and, you know, it becomes a tourist destination, right. Christian tourism in a way. There's nothing bad about that except that it doesn't really make for a great target for your church planning efforts to always send your people to where the kingdom's already growing out of control. So every denomination now has a church in Erdinette, and um, they all have a building. They all come with funds for a nice church building, brick church building. And so our church is kind of like, how come we don't have a building? And it's like, uh, I asked him, I asked the pastor, so did God tell you to get a building? And he looked at me like the cat with the little canary feathers coming out of his mouth. <laughs> He's like, uh, no, but everybody else has one. I said, yeah, can't we have a king like everybody else? That worked out well. You know? So we talked about it. And we said, okay, what could we do? And it was like, we need to strengthen these small churches that meet in homes. And he was like, well, you know, there's a space in the church office we could make open to the home groups. And I said, well, that would defeat the purpose because there's no neighbors for the church office. You know, neighbors, family members can wander into these churches and become part of the life that's going on there. And so really just rediscovering some of the things. This is the way this pastor was discipled. He knows, but coming back and not looking at what 
somebody down the block is doing, what the, you know, the other denomination is doing, but really looking, hey, they're all looking at us with admiration. What is it that God's given us that's unique? And what they have from the very beginning is small, rapidly multiplying house fellowships. And I go back to what we talked about earlier of hearing from God, as opposed to looking at what somebody else is doing, waiting to hear, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I'm not worried about what my neighbor's doing. I'm worried about what you want me to do and how that guides us and maybe helps us avoid some of those challenges. As we wrap up today with Kevin Sutter and Brian and Louise Hogan from YWAM Frontier Missions, we always want to equip people to pray. We didn't really talk about a specific country today, but let's talk about those church planters out in those villages working among Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and tribal people. How can our listeners pray for them this week? You know, they struggle with the same thing that maybe the Western missionaries that you're more familiar with struggle with, but sometimes it's more acute. Support issues. They're coming from churches that don't have a history and a tradition like ours do of supporting missionaries. Simple things like school uniforms and books for their kids can be an almost insurmountable issue. I just got a letter from some folks that are working in Africa, and he said, please pray for us. We need $200 for school fees. You know, sometimes a medical treatment because they regularly come down with things like malaria and even things I can't pronounce that you just like pick up when you're living out there. They don't have the kind of resources where almost every Western missionary I know has some kind of insurance that'll actually airlift you out if you need it. (laughs) That isn't true for most of our workers that are out there. So these are some practical things that you'd want for your own family. And um, God can find creative ways of providing them. I'm not suggesting that anybody needs to feel a responsibility to provide these things. Instead, bring it to the Father because he's got solutions and they need your prayers. For the Mongolian missionaries, they've struggled with longevity on the field. They go, they go with fearlessness and they go to places like Afghanistan and you know, it just blows me away. But staying there, these other challenges kick in and family health and children and- And loneliness. And we, loneliness, We yeah. had a gathering of some of the church planters and we, we brought them all into a central location, and there were several of them that, that are from the same country, and then they saw each other at this central location. They were so excited, and they were like, but you guys are from the same country. They are like, we live so far away. We can't see each other regularly. And actually, Voice of the Martyrs helped out for us to bring these people together, and these gathering events are so powerful because the church planters listen to each other, get to share their stories, and literally, and we have seen this over and over, within a couple months of going back to the field, they've seen a breakthrough that wasn't even being dreamed of before they came to this gathering because they got stirred up by their brothers and sisters, their peers who are doing the same work. And I want to talk about that as we finish up. YWAM Frontier Missions is one of our partners here at Voice of the Martyrs. What does that mean to you guys? How does VOM bless you? It makes us cry when we think about it. You may want to cut that out. I don't know, but it does. Well, we we talked about uh, the work that's taking place in that Muslim tribe. And uh, a lot of our people have been blessed by training that uh, 
Voice of the Martyrs paid for. We we bring short training out into the field for maybe a week at the most. People get the input they need, equipped with the tools they need, and then they get follow-up afterwards for the next six months or so. Uh, somebody mentoring them, coaching them, and all that costs money, and they don't have the resources, and we as an organization don't have the resources to do that. And you guys were an answer to prayer. So we were able to do what we wanted to do and felt we needed to do. We just didn't have the resources. We had the people. We didn't have the funds. You guys helped as partners with that. So anyway, over the last three years where we've been partnering like this, uh, the leader of our work there said they've seen phenomenal growth for a number of reasons. But certainly part of it is that uh, they've been getting what they needed when they needed it, and they keep moving forward with it. So we're super grateful for that practical help that we're getting from you guys. The workers that my heart it gets so excited about equipping are the ones that really can't afford to do anything than just like hitch rides out to their mission field and just stay there against all odds. And so anything else that we'd love to do for them, if we put something on in the past, it was only Westerners that showed up at it because they could afford to hop on a plane and come. Now it's possible for these isolated, lonely workers to come and be encouraged and be trained in everything. I can't tell you how grateful I am for that and just how amazing the results have been in the kingdom. Awesome. Well, I know from the perspective of our international workers that YWAM Frontier Missions is right close to the center of our heart. The, the places where you guys are working, the places you're training people, uh, the, the people that are literally putting their lives on the line to share the gospel, uh, we exist to stand with and equip and encourage exactly those kind of people. So it's such a great partnership, and I really appreciate you guys and appreciate you being a part of Voice of the Martyrs Radio this week. Thank you so much. If you'd like to learn more about YWAM Frontier Missions, you can go to their website, YWAMFM for FrontierMissions.com. YWAMFM.com. We'll also link you there when you come to VOMRadio.net. Also, when you come to VOMRadio.net, we'll link you to past episodes featuring Brian and Louise sharing about the birth of the church in Mongolia and our conversation with Kevin so you can hear more about what God is doing around the world. Next week, we're going to talk about how the U.S. government works towards religious freedom around the world. Isaac Six, who is a staff member at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, is going to be here with us to share his perspective from inside Washington, D.C. So I know you'll want to hear that. Be back with us next week right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.